Hiya, Duncan Green here after a rather long layoff of holidays and blog catastrophes um, with a roundup of recent links on From Poverty to Power. This one's going back over a few weeks uh, to catch up. I uh, hope you don't mind, so it might be a bit longer than usual. Um, first up, uh, way back when, uh, some links I liked. The one I'd pick up is there's a new, there's a trend, especially in America, for um, high school students to give quite radical speeches. You know, the, the, the system seems to be that in America, a graduation ceremony at high school, you have a valedictorian, some outstanding student who gives um, uh, an outgoing speech. Some of them are getting really good. And this one was a, a video of um, uh, a high school valedictorian in Texas called Paxton Smith, who threw away her prepared speech and launched into this brilliant critique of Texas's horrendous new abortion law. Um, and that went viral, as these things do. And uh, I th yeah, all power to her. And I think she's, she's obviously a great advocate um, in, in waiting. And we'll see where she ends up in a few years time. Um, second post, I've had a, a, been having an interesting piece of work for the Centre for Public Authority in International Development at the LSE. They asked me to look at impact, the impact of some of their research um, and write blogs, a series of blogs about it. And this is a kind of wrap up of, of those five blogs. I think it was five that I did. Um, it was interesting partly because you know, the normal story is that organisations choose their most impactful bit of research and then do a bit of and then write something about how it did it. Um, I was more just looking at the, the full body of research. There were a couple of sort of celebrity bits of work which had got impact, but a couple that hadn't got much impact. And it was quite interesting comparing just how researchers go about their business and how sometimes how they have impact sometimes and not others. Um, so uh, let's start with Milton Friedman, um, who uh, ha has a famous quote about impact uh, and the link with critical junctures. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function as academics, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. So you have ideas lying around and then you, you wait for a critical juncture and then you make them happen. So what I did with the, what I, what, you know, what I did with the, with the case studies is, is look at a bit, you know, how does that happen? What are the necessary but not sufficient conditions so that when something happens, your research has impact? And they're not radically new, but I think it was interesting looking at this particular exact set of pieces of research. First up, relationships. You know, a lot of the impact comes from researchers having networks in place before that crisis hits and then using them. Um, yeah, some of the best ones were just over a glass of wine with UN folk in Juba in South Sudan saying, oh, look, I've just found this. And then saying, oh, that's interesting. We never get out of Juba. Um, would you like to come and present? And that led to a whole rewrite of the UN's early warning system in South Sudan. Um, but also national researchers embedded in decision-making structures at national level as well. So just relationships, cultivating them, working with them, using them. And if you're an introverted, antisocial type of researcher, that's probably going to cost you in terms of impact. Sorry. Track record. You know, the longer you've been in a particular place, working on a particular issue, your credibility and contacts just accumulate with time. Um, 
and this may not always be intentional. You know, some of the research was just people had done their PhD on a certain topic. They weren't thinking about impact then. But in doing the PhD and going to a certain place and spending time there and interviewing loads of people, they built up a network, which when they then became postdocs and were working on other issues, they could use those networks to achieve results. So think about the track record. Authentic, high quality research. Few, you know, that it still matters whether the research is any good or not. That is a factor. Social media. You know, if you're on social media, it's much easier to grab one of these windows. You write a blog, you put out a tweet, you get noticed, people get back to you. You know, you're in the swim. So social media for researchers, I think, is really crucial. Brand, I'm afraid, you know, it's terribly colonial. But if you've got LSE logo on your research, then people are just going to take it a little bit more seriously to begin with, even if it's not very good. And if it is good, which, of course, all LSE research is good, then the, yeah, that's just a win-win. Findings that are surprising or unexpected. You know, there, there really is a question there that research that confirms what everybody already thinks just doesn't get much interest. Whereas the academic equivalent of a journalistic man bites dog story, you know, journalists say dog bites a man, not a story. Man bites a dog. That's a story. If there's a bit of that, you know, for example, in one of the pieces of research on Ebola uh, that I that I looked at, Ebola death rates were lower in community-run treatment centres, completely unofficial treatment centres, than they were in the official ones. That gets people's interest and opens doors and asks, and people say, tell us more. Um, so the overall impression, impact is important, but it's messy, unpredictable. But there are things you can do to improve your chances. So it's this, this set of necessary but not sufficient conditions which researchers, researchers should think about. Um, before the critical juncture hits. Next piece was uh, a really nice piece from the LSE Impact blog, which is a really good blog, uh, um, which kind of looks at impact of research, um, as, as the name implies. Um, and it's on the importance and nature of trust in ensuring that research influences policymakers. Um, so I read that, and it was about pure research and when research influences policymakers, but it made me think of advocacy organisations like Oxfam when they do research what are the strengths and weaknesses of, of research for advocacy, as, as we sometimes call it. So from the LSE Impact authors, who were Christopher Vitanovich and Rebecca Shellock, um, they did a, a big study of the ICES, the International Council for the Exploration of the Seas, which I'd never heard of before, but sounds like a very good thing. Um, and they looked at the lessons and processes in building and maintaining trust. And they they talked to people at the ICES and talked to the people who were working with them on different aspects of, of um, sea exploration. Um, all participants of our study, and this is quoting them directly, considered trust as critically important for successful knowledge exchange. One participant said that trust is the alpha and the omega. It is everything. Without trust, you don't have anything. OK, really good. But then people talk about trust in quite a hand wavy, abstract sort of way. So what Christopher and Rebecca did, which is really good, is start to say, OK, well, let's unpack trust. And they identified three levels at which trust is important. Trust between individuals, you know, an individual researcher and an individual policymaker. Those networks I was talking about in the, in the, in the context of the previous blog. Um, trust in the organisation, the rep, you know, the, the, the legitimacy of the organisation, um, which is seen as acting in a way that is free of bias in terms of a research organisation. And then trust in the process, the methodology, the way knowledge is generated and exchanged. 
And what they did was, you know, built, they, they identified 14 factors behind trust uh, and ranked them and did a really nice graphic, which got, you know, very retweeted. Number one, the, 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 most, the most cited factor was ensuring process transparency. Number two, do not advocate for a specific outcome. Say, this, these are your options, this is what the evidence shows, but don't say, you must do this. Have regular contact, number three. Don't just go and talk to a researcher, when, uh, to a policymaker, uh, you know, once in a blue moon. Do it regularly. Have the, build those networks. Be able to demonstrate independence. Acknowledge risks and limitations, and so on and so on. There's 14 different factors. So that got me thinking, okay, so which ones of those are a problem, potentially, for NGOs doing advocacy? Because, you know, uh, Oxfam has a research team. Uh, I mean, it's not massive by academic standards, and it has huge impact. Yeah, I think I mean, that's one, it's one example where that awful phrase, punching above your weight, actually applies. There are probably about 30 full-time researchers across the whole of Oxfam International, and yet they have really serious policy impact on things like inequality, um, care economy, taxation, you know, they, they really do, uh, I think, achieve quite a lot. But if you look at these issues of trust, I think there's some real challenges and some, I would highlight at least three, where they struggle, where NGOs actually have a problem. Do not advocate for a specific outcome. Well, hello, that's exactly what advocacy research often does. It doesn't just highlight a problem like inequality is rising. It says, and here's how you fix it. And in a way, that's like that's like a knee-jerk reaction. The journalist is going to come and say, okay, so you've identified this problem. What solutions are you proposing? And organizations want to come up with this. But at the extreme, you know, you start with your policy and you do something like policy-based evidence making. You know, that you've actually got the policy, so then you, you cobble together a report which justifies your policy with lots of evidence, but it's not particularly credible. So there's a real challenge there, I think, on not advocating for a specific outcome. You know, I once... Um, went to see Chris Whitty, who's now famous as the chief medical officer in the UK and is on sort of full-time COVID duty. But he was at one point head of research at DFID. And I said, um, you know, Professor Whitty, I've come to talk to you about research for advocacy. And he said, well, I don't believe in research for advocacy. You're either a researcher or you're an advocate, but you can't be both. So it was a very short meeting, not terribly successful, I have to say, from my point of view. But it brought home that, that point that these researchers, um, Christopher and Rebecca, have identified this question about being seen as not advocating for a specific outcome is important in building trust. Second one, yeah, be able to demonstrate independence, ditto. Oxfam is not independent. Oxfam has a view of how the world should be. It's independent in the sense that it doesn't, it's not run by any particular political party, but its independence is, is, is conditioned by its priors, by its beliefs, by its, its norms. Allow try, and the third one I identified is allow time for trust to form. You know, academics operate on a much longer time cycle. You know, you have people who study the sugar industry in Michoacan, Mexico, for decades. So, you know, they've built the networks. They've, you know, they've talked to everybody who's interested in that topic. You know, they know everyone. They're part of the landscape. That's, NGOs are much more frenetic than that. They move from issue to issue, depending on what's a priority at the moment. They constantly strategize and change their direction. And in a way, that's that's how it should be. That's being adaptive, that's being flexible, that's responding to the changing events. But it means you don't have that luxury of time to build trust. So I guess my conclusion at the end of that was that, well, maybe if we accept those limitations, it strengthens the argument that instead of just doing research yourself, 
you should have a sort of alliance. You should find people to work with, with these pure academic institutions who have these other qualities, which we struggle to, to, to have, uh, and build alliances there rather than do the research yourself. So that was just a, an interesting uh, piece, I thought. Next post was by um, some people from WaterAid. Segareda Abraham, Hussein Israf Adib and John Garrett introduced its new report, yeah, excellent new report. Um, it's called Mission Critical, Investing in Water, Sanitation and Hygiene for a Healthy and Green Recovery. And I'll just read out a couple of paragraphs. Why invest in water, sanitation and hygiene? Most school, school children would need only a few seconds to find an answer. Of course, water and sanitation are human rights. And hygiene has a vital role in preventing infectious disease, as COVID-19 has highlighted all too clearly. So why is progress in ensuring everyone everywhere has access to these essential services so stubbornly slow? And what might change this thinking? The new report from Wartrade based on research by Vivid Economics. Now that's a title. That's, a, that's an organisation name I will remember. Aims to do this, challenging the mindsets of the decision makers who think mainly in terms of dollars, pounds and euros. It confirms the multiple benefits of achieving universal access to safe wash services, unlocking potentially trillions of dollars of value over the next two decades. So what's, it's a very good example of something, uh, of a kind of report from very good NGO researchers, which I think suffers from some of the issues I raised above, and also from another issue, which is, you know, it's absolutely packed full of killer facts, statistics, evidence. How much does evidence persuade people? That is the question. We can't have a sort of positivist assumption that if we just have the right graph or have the right numbers, then everything will be okay and people will flock to our cause. You've got to think about norms, you've got to think about incentives, politics, power, lots of other issues. So I think there's a real limit to how far these kind of reports can go. They can provide ammunition for people who are already in agreement but I'm not sure how good they are at persuading people who, who currently oppose or don't give, who aren't interested in what you're saying. So, but that's something I'll be picking up um, in the, over the next few weeks, this question of beyond evidence, what else do you need? Then we had another links I liked. I think the one that uh, I read, to, um, which I would urge you to read, is the, the, the full letter from Gareth Southgate which started Dear England. Gareth Southgate was the, is the England manager, the manager of the England football team in the uh, Euro 2020, uh, 2021 competition. Um, and he got embroiled in the discussion about race and taking a knee um, and Black Lives Matter. And I thought he wrote a beautiful, grown up, mature, convincing, just wonderful letter about why it's okay and important for young footballers to demonstrate their anti-racist beliefs. And I, I think, you know, I do urge you to read that letter. I think it's extraordinary. You know, my son was saying, Gareth Southgate for Prime Minister after reading that letter, and I can see where he's coming from. Next up, I had a bit of a gap in the blog, to be honest. So when I, when I have a gap and, you know, uh, rather than just leave it empty, I think, well, what's really good that I can just plug, you know, bring to people's attention? And this one, um, the new humanitarian magazine, uh, it's a website, rather, uh, is excellent and it has a weekly roundup called the cheat sheet a humanitarian cheat sheet which is really useful if you're not fully embroiled in emergency response and that whole world once a week you get a real good summary of what's going on um, and so i just you know uh, republished the latest cheat sheet and said this should definitely be on your weekly reading list excuse me slurp of tea this is going on quite a long time 
Right, <clears throat> next one. Guest post by Tina Pasanen and Pablo Yanguas. Um, and it's a, it's a very inside baseball kind of um, post. And actually, sometimes on the blog, those are the most popular. I have a lot of aid nerds, I think, read the blog. So this one was, but essentially, this wasn't a title. The title was something more boring. But the, the essential title is Mel Consultants, What Are They Good For? Um, uh, and, and Tina and Pablo are Mel Consultants. Uh, and so they said, yeah, and they wanted to talk about the limitations of their role and why they are not always used very well. So there's lots of demand, right? Lots and lots of organizations have been pressured by funders or by their own boards and management to get better at measuring, at monitoring, evaluating, and learning. That's what MEL stands for. Um, yeah, do, does what we do have impact? How do we know? What have we learned from the last time we tried to do this? You know, questions which you think would be obvious, but actually sometimes get bypassed in the sort of frenetic what's the next project what's the next project sort of churn of the aid sector increasingly people have to do proper mail but increasingly they also say okay well we can't do this very well let's bring in some external consultants like tina and pablo <clears throat> so they describe themselves as the kinds of mail experts and learning advisors who are contracted to design tools frameworks or processes for a team or a whole organization but you know confession we tend to work best with those who need us the least. So when organizations bring in external help to address male gaps, it is highly unlikely that imported practices will be owned by anyone accustomed to the status quo. So the classic thing, the male consultant comes in, designs a nice shiny new system, presents it to the board, the board says, thank you very much. And then slowly the forces of inertia in the organization block it, water it down, prevent it happening, nothing changes. And by contrast, those organizations which already have a burgeoning learning culture are unlikely to think they need the services of external consultants. So many male professionals continue to sell their services to failing clients with little hope of having an impact, which is a tragic state of, to be in. And I sympathize with Pablo and Tina. They're only gonna get paid by people who are, their consultancy will achieve absolutely nothing. So when and how does it work? How do we fix this problem? So they say Mel needs to be part of organizational vision, structure, and process, and it's about timing, and we're back to critical junctures again. Send for Milton Friedman. But these are internal critical junctures. Things like strategic reviews, internal reorganizations, when everything is unsettled and there's a consensus on the need for change. So that's when existing habits and customs have already been challenged, and, and there's a fluidity about things. There's no ownership yet for a clear vision or a new organigram or a new process. And that means that ideas might find purchase. So they conclude, consultants and learning partners can seldom change a learning system or organizational culture. It just doesn't work like that. What they can do is interrogate existing practices, introduce new ideas, and support change processes already underway to ensure lasting impact. They're a multiplier for homegrown change initiatives, not a substitute. So don't hire male consultants to sell you tools or tell you what to do. Hire them because you need a critical friend along the path of organizational change. Own, then learn, not the other way around. Brilliant, and judging by the number of comments and retweets and comments on Twitter, this has struck a nerve. You know, So thank you, Pablo and Tina, for sending over that guest post, and uh, I hope it helps with people's, the way people introduce Mel in their organizations. Final post, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, 
was based on a conversation I had with Josie Pagani, who runs New Zealand's Council for International Development, which is their kind of NGO network on international development, works very closely with New Zealand's Ministry for Foreign Affairs and Trade, and they're having a conference in a couple of months on the impact of COVID on aid and localization. And Josie wants me to contribute, um, and this was a kind of initial conversation, but it was so interesting that I read, uh, I thought that I wrote a blog about it. And also it's a chance for me to pick people's brains ahead of that presentation, so I'll just nick your ideas. And the starting point is that lots of people are getting very excited about one aspect of the pandemic, which is that the white men in shorts model of development of aid um, has been shelved because the white men in shorts are stuck at home like me. Uh, I am actually white and I am currently wearing shorts. Um, so instead of that, you've got um, local organisations receiving money when there's a hurricane or whatever it is. Uh, and, and this is very much focused on the Pacific Islands, which is where New Zealand's aid programme works, largely works. Um, and they're running their own responses. So there's lots of really interesting research, which I've cited already on the blog about how this shifts things. The question is, once the pandemic is over, will it be a permanent shift or will it bounce back to business as usual? And so the question that I wanted to raise in the blog is how do you take the sparks of change from the pandemic and light a fire that changes the way aid functions long after COVID is history? How do you institutionalize, make permanent an interesting change like localization during the pandemic? Because what can easily happen is that everyone assumes that the current consensus is permanent, but it isn't. And they say, yes, this is great. They shift a bit of money. Um, you know, they, they, they make lots of sort of ringing statements, but they don't really build an institutional structure which will ensure its permanence. And then five years down the line, some new priorities come up and, you know, and localization is, is back on the, on the back burner. So some thoughts on what might um, yeah, influence this. Um, hold on, just on turn the page. So uh, examples of things that can make this moment of momentum more permanent. Laws, right? So, you know, there was, there's been a big debate in the UK over whether it was a good idea to put aid uh, to pass a law saying that aid should be 0.7% of national income, which has just this week tragically been uh, scrapped um, in a vote in Parliament. But that law had the effect of making it much harder to get rid of. It created uh, a bit of inertia around what I would argue is a good thing, which is yeah, Britain's commitment to aid. Um, funding rules. So, you know, some bits of New Zealand aid, especially the big bits, are only open for applications from New Zealand based organisations, although they often come with Pacific partners in a kind of subordinate, you know, subcontracting type relationship. Um, why not flip that and say we're only going to give aid to Pacific organisations where uh, who do have the option to partner with New Zealand based organisations, but that's not essential. So you can change the rules and that take again introduces a little bit of stickiness in the change. Full spectrum localization recognizes it's not just about the money, right? Um, you can redirect the money, but if the recipient organizations then have like, you know, vast reporting requirements, due diligence, and enormous bureaucracy, um, it can be ground down and effectively they end up saying, actually, we'd rather not do this. So you've got to actually commit to thinking what else is needed as well as the money uh, to really get localization serious and put rules and support behind it. 
reporting requirements and transparency. You know that even if you don't pass laws, if the if MFATS, the Ministry for Foreign Affairs and Trade, commits to making an annual statement on the amount of its money that goes to Pacific organisations directly, rather than via salami slice contracts with New Zealand-based organisations, that would give a moment every year when this issue is discussed and keep it in the public eye. And a, ver a bigger version of that is league tables, right? So which uh, aid agencies are doing best on localization? If there's a league table published regularly with a rigorous methodology which shows which aid agencies are taking localization seriously, which are not, that really helps for the advocates. It creates a sense of upward competition within the aid agencies. You know, ministers will be shamed if they're at the bottom and, you know, um, chuffed at the, if they're at the top. League tables, I think, have enormous, always think they have enormous potential to motivate policy change. Um, but then there's something deep, sort of wider, which is creating constituencies and advocates for permanent change. You know, people are advocating for localization now. Maybe advocating for something else in a few years' time. So how do you create posts, positions, bodies which are about localization and will continue to be about localization? Do you need, you know, councils of Pacific recipients? Because they're always going to argue for that. Diaspora voices. Who, who, if you support them now, will become a permanent voice? Is it just jobs in MFAT? Or, you know, I mean, what is it? So creating jobs, I think, is actually a, an underrated way to create a lasting constituency. Then finally, shifting norms. You know, how do you shift behaviours and norms? Do you make it, how, can you make it unthinkable to publish research or organise an event or a panel on aid without scholars or speakers from the region? You know, I, I love the, the work around manals, you know, men-only panels. Uh, I think it's had real impact on the way organisations organise their events. I mean, it's a small thing, but it's important. And they did it partly using humour. They set up this fantastic website where you send in your... Um, picture of a men-only panel, a manal, and then they brand it with a nice big thumbs-up picture of David Hasselhoff from Baywatch, who's like the ultimate sort of, you know, satirical alpha male. Um, and that just, I think, is very funny and very effective in terms of getting people aware of these kinds of issues. So I think, you know, these are just some ideas. Please, please chip in some others because I'm going to need them when I do the presentation. Sorry that's been a bit long, but I had a lot to catch up on. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye.